Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Folly Coffee Podcast. If you haven't done so already, I ask that real quick here, you just pause, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, and if you've liked any of the previous episodes or this episode, please give us that five-star rating. It helps us greatly. Thank you, and enjoy this episode. Do you like money? Do you like free money? Introducing Folly Bucks. Give $10, get $10. That's right. You will get a unique code to share with your friends, family, enemies, anyone you know. They use that code. You automatically get $10 to use towards future Folly purchases. And the person you shared the code with gets $10 for their purchase. There is no limit to the amount of Folly bucks you can get. So head to follycoffee.com, hit the header at the top, and get your Folly bucks now. Let's go. Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 85 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. I am here with Chris DeFerio of the Keys to the Shop podcast. If you are in coffee, you probably know the funky bass line, the intro leading up to his podcast. He is the host and producer of that show, as well as the owner of Keys to the Shop uh, Consulting. And it is a top 100 food podcast. And that's not just sometimes you'll see an episode land in the top 100. This is the all-time list of Apple Podcasts, top 100. He is a staple within that. Uh, and he has 20-plus years in the coffee industry, dating all the way back to 2001. So welcome to the show, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for the great introduction there. Um, I feel pretty good for being in the industry as long as I have been. I'm still kicking. Does it feel like 20 years? Does it feel like longer than that or shorter? You know, these days, uh, I had just recently stopped working some part-time shifts behind the bar last year. That felt like working on the bar for 20 plus years. And so now that I'm full-time with the podcast, things are a little bit uh, less aggressive on, on the old body. So yeah, I'm sure when you started yeah. your coffee career, this is not where you saw that job end up being starting in 2001. I mean, podcasts were really not a thing at that point for another at least five or six years. No, there weren't. I, I feel like, I think the first coffee podcast ever was the Portafilter podcast. Um, it's been gone for a while now, but um, that was Nick Cho and Jay Carragay. They, they kind of started the coffee podcast thing back it must be 2004 or so. I'm not sure on the date, but no, there there wasn't anything around back then. And um, we had forums when, you know, forums used to be a big thing and they're not anymore. Uh, we have Twitter for that, I guess, but I like forums better. I remember I that in the, the old school. I remember that in the conversation I had with Joe Morocco, he was talking about uh, why he started doing the YouTube videos was there was really no information for anybody that's a shop owner or a roaster. And it used to be the forums and then podcasting and YouTube and everything started to open up. And what I love about your podcast is the wide range of topics. I think sometimes people want to start podcasts and only talk about like the sexy side of the business and talk about the things that are exciting to everybody at all times. And with your podcast, it is such a resource for shop owners, for roasters, anybody in the coffee industry. I mean, the the last episode or one of the uh, most recent episodes was why the business flows through the cash register. I mean, if you want to talk about a topic that probably not a lot of people are going to label as like the sexy side of the business, but the importance on those things is so high. So the fact that you're taking the time and effort to record an entire episode about a topic like that, it's just an example of the wide ranging topics you have on your show, including interviews of some of the industry's leading professionals. And we were just talking off mic a second ago about that's the really cool thing about podcasting is it allows you to interview people that you may not have had a chance to interact with. And in a way that you're able to gain these valuable insights about their expertise. But For this episode, I'd love to date all the way back to the beginning of your coffee professional career, how you found your way there, lead it up to today, and now being a full-time podcast and consultant is just such a unique profession within the coffee industry. So how did you get your start within coffee? 
Sure, thank you. Uh, you know, uh, real quick before I launch into that, uh, you mentioned the episode about the cash register, but my my most proud moment in a weird way was releasing an even more unsexy episode about refrigeration and freezer maintenance. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was like, that, that feels like something we just do because it's right to do. Um, but yeah, how did I get here? I think yeah, where, else, where else would you go to find an entire recorded episode about refrigeration? And yet it's probably yeah. one of the more common things that shop owners run into that they don't have expertise in. I was excited to record that episode. I really was <laughs> like, because as a barista and that's where I got my start, like anybody, um, you know, you run into those problems and the problems of the owners end up being the problems of the staff, which end up being the problems of the customer, which as an industry ends up being our collective problem. And so that's the joy of getting to you know, put out a lot of information um, from being in the industry as long as I have been is like you on the ground level have experienced almost everything you could think of behind the bar and more. So, uh, you know, my, my career got started uh, a little over 20 years ago when I had just graduated from a, a ministry school in the Midwest, I think you could call Arkansas the Midwest, it's Northwest Arkansas. And uh, at that time, I didn't know what else to do with my life. And so I just started going to coffee shops and hanging out. And I, I realized that I could um, taste the difference between different origins. At that moment, I started getting fascinated with coffee. I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I was at a pivotal moment where I was going to move back home to Syracuse, New York, where I'm originally from. And I, for one day at my uh, desk, I just looked up and I, I said, coffee. And that's it. I mean, really, it was as simple as making that decision right there. There's almost a calling to go into coffee. And so I did. And I just never looked back. I just kept doing that. And I just went down the rabbit hole. I um, got introduced to specialty coffee. Um, there was a wholesale account for Cafe Vita, which is a Northwest uh, account in, in Seattle, um, a roaster in Seattle. And I had a macchiato there. And it was unlike anything I'd ever tasted. It was well extracted. It was sweet. It was it was all the things that I didn't know coffee could be. We're talking about a tiny macchiato, right? And so and not not I the Starbucks caramel, frappe, not yeah, not exactly. the frappuccino style macchiato, which I had been drinking up until that point. You know, gas station um, to English toffee. What I I don't care. I was just drinking coffee. Um, so I ordered four more of those for the trip back. Uh, and I, it, this was just like a weekly thing for me, drive two hours, buy five macchiatos, drink them over five hours, go back home. And I wanted to get it like in my head, like what the taste was like, because I, I figured this is the North star for me, flavor wise and culture wise. And so I just kept on working in coffee bars. I got fired from my first coffee job. Um, I worked in the same town that I was living in, in Arkansas. And I honestly probably would have fired me too. I was really passionate, but not a great worker. Um, and I just, for some reason, I either wanted to prove them wrong, or I just continued on with my dedication to the idea of doing coffee for a living, moved back to New York and got my first real specialty job at Gimme Coffee back in uh, 2002, 2003. Um, and Gimme Coffee, uh, up until recently, unfortunately, because of COVID, they had to close all their New York City stores, but they had stores in New York City, and they're based in Ithaca, New York. And it, everything kind of started from there, you know, for me, uh, specialty coffee-wise. Um, and I cut my teeth doing barista work, latte art. Uh, I started getting into latte art a lot and started winning competitions. Um and the competitions opened up a whole new world of community for me that led to uh, barista competitions, which are just whole routines set around more than just latte art, but espresso, cappuccinos, uh, signature beverages. And I was just enamored with the drink, the history, the culture, you know, the community, and more than anything, the coffee shop itself just being in a shop, knowing that like a watch, there's so many things that go on underneath the surface 
for us to have this convenient little glance at our wrist to see what time it is. It's the same thing as a customer drinking a cup of coffee. We want them to take that for granted. That's their role that enjoy your coffee, but beneath the surface, there's all these different facets. And I really am fascinated by all of those moving parts and being a part of those moving parts has been really a pretty cool journey. Yeah, especially when you go to a shop and a shop that day in and day out has that same quality, because I think sometimes you find a shop that you find a great barista. And then when you're there that day, you know, you're going to get a great shot of espresso. or You're going to get a properly prepared beverage, but then you go another day and that barista is not working and the quality declines. But the shops where there is consistent quality day in and day out, you start to realize that it's not only the barista is doing a great job, but all those moving parts working in conjunction together with systems in place that that quality, it doesn't matter which day of the week or who's working a shift for that to work successfully. So I'm just looking at your work experience here. You start uh, at Gimme Coffee in 2002. You're the espresso bar director and the coffee program uh, director at Carriage House Cafe in Ithaca, manager, barista, trainer, quality control at Cafe Kubal, operations manager at, um, if I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, Synergos? Synergos. Synergos Coffee. That's why I had to ask. (laughs) In Louisville. So I'm curious about that move because that's where you are now. And that was in 2014. So how did you end up from Syracuse working at Kubal uh, to Louisville? Yeah, that's an interesting story. I I was working a lot at the previous job. I I hit the ground running at 70 hours a week just um, for months on end. I was starting to get uh, burned out, I think. Um, we as a family needed a move. Uh, we just felt like it was time to do something different. And so I had at Carriage House Cafe worked with a guy who went down to Kentucky and he was part of a, a church plant down there. Uh, but we had worked together in Ithaca at the Carriage House Cafe, which is a restaurant, coffee bar, um, really awesome place. Um, he and I had been in communication. I had talked to him about the fact that I wanted a, a change and all this other stuff, but he said he's moving back to New York to start his own roastery. So um, his roastery is called Copper Horse Coffee up there in the Ithaca area. And we basically switched places. He was vacating a position mm-hmm. of operations manager for Synergos Coffee, which is a local place here that's about, 15, I think it's 15 years old now. Um, they had three stores and they're looking for somebody to take over in operations and he's you know looking to move back to new york so it was uh, serendipity as far as i was concerned um it went through like an eight to nine month interview process um and moved down to new york or uh to kentucky to louisville um seven years now it's been i think since we moved down it was 2014 i believe uh maybe it was earlier than that 13 but we have been, it's grown on us. To live in Louisville is to accept blistering heat in the summer. I'm a New Yorker and uh, it's it's taken some getting used to, but now I'm more of a, a wuss when it comes to snow. I think I'm starting to acclimate a little bit. Um, but the coffee scene here is pretty cool. Uh, I got at least two or three major players in the city and it's a growing city. It's a great place. So my operations role was essentially to um, help introduce systems and um, just procedures and structure to a place that had grown organically and it was relatively free from those things, um, not in not in the concepts, but in the application of them. So the challenge was to come into a, a company that needed codification of values that had grown over a decade um, working on the systems, the people, the quality, all of those things. We just hit the ground running, made some major changes uh, in you know, styles of management, quality control, inventory, you name it. We uh, did a lot of work there. And so my role is essentially to oversee those things and to manage managers, which is not as easy as it may sound. And if it sounds hard to you, it might be a little bit harder than you think. (laughs) Well, and I'm sure coming into an established business like that and say, essentially, like you haven't had 
an operational officer at this point and to start to come in and change how things have been done with people that are already managing people is probably a pretty disruptive process. What was that like to come into a business that has been established and start to try to implement new operations? And this this is probably going to link pretty closely to the conversations we'll have later, but what is that like to put new operations in place, especially with a business that is having success, is growing, and then you come in and say, we're going to kind of change how things are done? Um, it's a learning process. I had... Uh, as a backstory to answer your question, um, as a trainer previously, I'd been pretty heavy-handed because I had a very um, specific view of what I wanted to have happen on the bar, and I was learning people skills, but I had coffee skills. So it's a dangerous combination, uh, which means you you can steamroll people pretty easily. You know, I have a naturally furrowed brow. <laughs> I have an intense position on the bar whenever I'm, you know, thinking about something. It could be, I could be thinking about puppies and rainbows and people are thinking I want to murder puppies. Like (laughs) that's just the way I look. And so I just had, uh, some learning experiences in the training role, but I also brought some of those learning opportunities to this role in operations. I remember going in, um, to one of the new stores with a clipboard because to me, I was just taking notes and everything else, right? But it intimidated people because they are just, they've been working at this bar for a long time. They're acclimated to the culture. And here I am, uh, an outsider to the culture. Without regard for the culture, coming in and out of the goodness of my heart, sincerely wanting to do a good job, not realizing that I'm stepping on toes uh, left and right, um, got to dial that back a little bit. And so to answer your question, I think that it was both good because sometimes things need to be shaken up, but also it was it could have been done a little bit more tactfully on my end um, and maybe on all of our end, you know, um, lesson learned. And it helps my mistakes uh, help inform how I talk about coffee to my clients, uh, to people who listen to Keys to the Shop. It's kind of things that fuel my questions for operators when I interview people. And so I'm glad to have those mistakes now. Uh, Not so much then, but uh, to answer it more in depth, it took a lot of communication. Um, It was a process that was, I think, needed time. You're talking about a year or two years before you even really start to see traction and acceptance of new information and new standards and systems. Um, And this is not just in that role, but it's in other places where maybe I was writing a manual for baristas and you want baristas to start tamping a different way or doing pour overs a different way. Well, when you're working with multiple stores, let alone just one store, both could be true. you're, you're, You're changing the direction of a large vehicle that has all these people, all these systems, and everyone feels safe within that, it looks dangerous. And people don't like that necessarily until they see the benefit and also they see the dedication, which we talk about on the show often is if you're just going to come back from a trade show um, and you have a hot idea about inventory or, or management or quality control and you just drop it, uh, like a like a cherry bomb in a toilet and then run, people are going to realize you're not dedicated to actually seeing this through and you're not dedicated to our well-being. So the systems that you implement and through my experience need to be matched with a dedication to the success of those people who have to f- just be, basically carry out those systems or else it just looks like uh, a dictatorship that doesn't have to bear the weight of the systems it creates and uh, it's a kind of let them have let them eat cake attitude yeah, towards you, running a coffee bar. And you mentioned that the buy-in happens when the benefit is seen by the baristas or by the team. Do you have ways of communicating the benefit or showing the benefit of what is going to happen from a new program or a new strategy or a new technique prior to implementing a new program? Yeah, so change management author uh, John Cotter Uh, talks about how the pain of the current dysfunction has to outweigh the pain of change in order for people to adopt something new. And so I think the main thing is, even though you can see 
like I just got done doing an assessment for a client who had just purchased an existing business, an assessment of all their operations. We had a three and a half hour meeting, about four or five page report. There's a lot of stuff. At the end of it, though, is what's the priority? What are we going to focus on and how do we choose what to focus on? Well, one, you have to focus on the things that employees already feel need to be fixed in order for them to do their job well, right? So if it's a a tool that they don't have. Now, we're not revamping a a system when we're replacing a a knockbox, for example. But when you start, when you want to get people to buy in, you've got to get small wins. So getting them a new brush because the brush they have on bar just is completely like this big bush now. It's just not... Uh, a brush anymore. <laughs> it looks like uh, just a bunch of knotted hair. Like I tell people, buy your barista's new sponges for this for the sink and, and watch how they react to that. Really, I think you focus on what you know people already have some angst towards. And then as you create those wins, you introduce the idea of further uh, change, having already built up some trust that what we're about here as leaders, and which I think all leaders in coffee bars should be about, is distributing their power for the benefit of those that they serve in their leadership position. And so that would be my first thing is small wins, um, and then things that tie directly to current feelings of frustration um, that are highly uh, actionable and achievable. And then you kind of go from there and people will start getting on the bandwagon of, wow, this really made a difference. So the next time we talk about changing something, it's more likely you're going to think of that in terms of this also will make a difference. Um, But if you're just going to revamp your entire process, you better be ready for nearly 100% turnover (laughs) at that point. Um, you can almost yeah, don't want. You can almost picture the old school scales where you're looking at current dysfunction and then uh, how it outweighs like the difficulty of implementing it. When you're talking about something like a new brush, that the scale is heavily favored towards the dysfunction. It's a super easy fix that really requires nothing on their end to be able to implement. And then as you knock off that problem, you're down to the next thing that it's a little more cut and dry. But then you get to that point where there's this balance where it is dysfunctional, but the problem of implementing it is more difficult. And then that scale gets close together of that's going to be a more difficult task to accomplish. But hopefully by what you're saying, by accomplishing the smaller, the low-hanging fruit, if you will, of the dysfunction, that you've built the credibility that by the time you get to that point of the more difficult decisions with dysfunction, that you've built up enough credibility as leadership or owner or manager that there's buy-in that, okay, everything they've implemented up to this point has been positive and affected my work positively, so we'll take the leap of faith on this one because of that credibility they've built. And so you are there for, it looks like about three years when Keys to the Shop podcast becomes a thing. I'm curious what that journey was like that led you to want to start a podcast in the first place. Yeah, so I think because I have been a active barista and behind the bar presence for as long as I have been and on the ground floor of smaller to mid-sized growing companies and not I never was a barista at a very famous coffee bar Um, it was always in a place where it was kind of just getting started things were a little messy we were all kind of working together to make it less messy got to see it expand a little bit and I thought okay well I'm gonna move on so it's like three years four years here and there for me And I used to feel very frustrated about that. Like, I want to work for Intelligentsia. I want to work for Stumptown because these are the the rock stars of the industry, at least, you know, in the early 2000s, especially. Um, But now I see the relative anonymity of those roles as somewhat of a blessing in disguise. Um, Similar to how, you know, when something is, is planted, it takes a while underground of development before it pops back up. Now I was visible in the industry for a little bit, um, but I just disappeared for, you know, after I got married, I stopped doing competitions. Um, 
And I just put my head down and started working in different places and really didn't make much of a, a peep. I didn't do much in the industry to speak of. I started to feel like I wanted to do something creative, that I wanted to do something that was mine and not somebody else's work. Um, although I'm contributing to the industry by the work I'm doing, I am a creative person. I'm a verbal processor, which helps. Um, and I think I just was realizing the value of practical training. I've always loved training. I've loved the idea of giving somebody the tools they need to cut through the crap that is out there, the signal, find the signal in the noise, all of that stuff. And like, I've always taken joy in that, whether it's teaching latte art or barista skills or whatever. And so I had been listening to business podcasts, in particular, one called Coaching for Leaders by uh, Dave Stahoviak. And it, it was striking to me how simple and direct the content was. He did interview-based podcasts, and I was just thinking about the podcasts that Coffee had at the time were more conversational and about insider culture than they were. Like, if you wanted to learn how to be a good boss or trainer or barista or whatever, there was almost no Coffee podcast out there that had easily accessible information for me to go and say, I really learned a lot about how I'm going to get better in the next month as a barista from this. That's what I wanted. And so I decided to create that. Um, and I think I underestimated how many people I know in the industry at that point, because now about 480 episodes later, um, and not only underestimated the network, but the topics that you could cover in coffee, we're, st we're just getting started, to be honest. Um, so I started it to deliver tools to help people thrive in their businesses, in their careers, and so that they didn't have to like fast forward a ton to find good content, gold nuggets of information that they can apply to their, um, their situation. And that's why we have such a wide range of topics too, um, because I want to... I want to keep it focused on coffee bars, but coffee bars are influenced by a lot of other topics around coffee as well. And so while we do f skew more towards leadership and developing as a, as a leader in the coffee bar and operations, I think there's a lot of other peripheral topics that are helpful that we cover to deliver that kind of a educational foundation and the ability to I think avoid needless mistakes and you don't, you don't really have, you don't have to hurt people to learn. And that happens a lot in coffee. Bosses don't have much leadership experience because they come from an industry where they were an employee. They thought I should open a coffee bar because I love coffee. And then they just start trying to lead five or six young 20 somethings. And then everybody gets, you know, hurt in the process. Um, and everyone moves to another coffee bar to repeat the process. And I was kind of sick of that happening. And so um, that's kind of the genesis of the Keys to the Shop podcast. And it's, it's interesting you point out the existing landscape of podcasts within coffee because it is almost like you had the podcast for the culture and the barista side and the competition side and the very visible side. And then you had the side that was like roasting and sourcing and those conversations. But that middle part, the practical knowledge of leadership and running a shop and all the different facets that go into that, there wasn't really anything there. So you identified this gap within the podcasting world, within the YouTube world, even of things of a podcast style that didn't exist. You combined it with your wealth of knowledge from the various roles you've had, and you combined it into a podcast that when you say 480 episodes, that's an inconceivable number on my end. I think <laughs> this is going to be episode 85, and I'm, I'm looking at that going, that's insane because I'm already like, man, what are we going to do for the next 10 episodes? How are we going to keep finding new topics and new guests and new things to cover? But within coffee, <laughs> right you're probably experiencing it that there are so many different aspects of a successful shop that there's almost never an, and there's never an end to the topics that can be covered. And so that's why yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to have you on and pick your brain about uh, different 
aspects of opening a shop, of running a shop that as a roaster, we're a wholesale roaster only, so we don't have a shop. So it's not an area of expertise of mine. But what will happen is we will have incoming leads or people that want to start carrying our coffee that are in different scenarios. And I've kind of learned on the fly at this point the different uh, the different things that go into it of serving customers' needs within shops. But we're going to cover here is I'm just going to ask you questions about common mistakes of people you see in different scenario. And so here's one that we will get quite a few of. And it's an interesting conversation to start with someone that reaches out, hey, you have an incoming lead, and that incoming lead is, I'm interested in starting a coffee shop. Then you reach out, hey, give me some info about your coffee shop, what's your background, and you get this person approaching you that says, I've never worked at a coffee shop, I don't have any real coffee experience, I'm very passionate about coffee and service and a place to serve the community, but outside of that, all my knowledge is based on places I've been and I know what I like. What is the most common mistake you find of someone with no prior experience professionally in the industry that looks to open a coffee shop? Okay. And this is something that I get from time to time from my own clients too. And I think I've convinced at least three people not to do it. <laughs> that would um, be usually my first advice. You should probably so get some experience first. <laughs> yeah. And in, in all, I only do that if after talking to them, I get the feeling that they're underestimating the work that it's going to take to do this. And not only the I work, cannot echo that enough. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> like, right? I, I need to turn the volume up on that portion of the episode. The amount of work. Yes. Bold that in the audio. Uh, so I think it's the work of doing it right. But it's not just the work of doing it. It's the work of being it. That's what I was alluding to earlier in the genesis of the show, which is the amount of change that you undergo as a human being in this process is enormous and probably mostly what the work is going going to feel like because you can get your business plan you can get the um, bells and whistles and most people you know when you're procrastinating and you rearrange your desk uh instead of working on the thing that you know you need to work on the only time i dish it when they're it's the only time my dishes get cleaned (laughs) (laughs) exactly um i know i have a procrastination book here that i haven't finished you know but (laughs) the the point is that that same kind of busy work to get your attention and energy off of the thing that you know you should be doing is similar to what people do when they're trying to source, um, they're sourcing their coffee or they're sourcing their equipment or syrup selection, or they're just like banging away on their menu. Um, and I see it all the time. Um, so they're barking up the wrong tree when it comes to what's actually going to create success. And so if I feel like, hey, I think you're ambitious to think that this is going to be something you can hire, first of all, experienced baristas to run this shop for you. You're going to get it open in three months. You have no coffee experience. Um, And if you just have the right location, the right menu, and the right people, it'll work. You have to be the right person. Um, And that takes time. If you're not that person now, you should, and I recommend people, go work in a place where you can observe either what that right person looks like or what they don't look like because both are motivating. If you're a barista who's worked for a bad boss, you're motivated to be a great boss. So that's fine. But if you're a barista who's worked for a great boss, then you're going to want to be a great boss as well. But if you've never done anything like that and you just have a chunk of money that you want to throw at a coffee venture, I I tend to be somewhat skeptical about that because um, it doesn't feel... I don't know. It it doesn't feel like we need more of those businesses around. Um, We need longevity, especially now after COVID. I would, you know, a lot of people are opening coffee bars now um, because they see the opportunity. I think they're wise to do so. But um, if you're not going to be in this for 10 to 20 years and you're not going to be on the ground leading your people and being willing to take on change yourself as a person, then I, I, again, I'm skeptical. So the mistakes that people make, number one, assumption. The, and number two would be that it's going to look like what your business plan says. Your business plan is really there to help you get a little bit more disciplined about your um, ideas and also to get money. You know, you, you don't really need a business plan. If you've got the money, you don't need a business plan 
if you know what you're doing, mm -hmm. right? If you've worked in coffee, especially, um, it's helpful to do, um, but technically you don't need it. There's lots of businesses that opened without a business plan. They just started at a farmer's market and they grew from there. Um, so assumption number one, two, it's not going to look like your business plan, especially because coffee bars are, they are a co-created space, whether you want them to be or not. So your customers, your staff, your ideals, it's like the three circles in the middle of the Venn diagram is now the iteration of your coffee bar. So five, 10 years from now, it's not going to look like that. And that could either frustrate you and make you want to just white knuckle the process and choke out the life of this business and wonder why it doesn't work or it's exciting and like coffee is exciting because there's so much to learn and the world is bigger than you or I could ever explore alone um, you could see that as energy to use for the benefit of your business so those are a couple of things that I would say offhand to that question yeah and alluding to I th that's something I hear a lot is you know, you'll bring it up and you say, hey, with no previous experience, how do you plan on handling the coffee program, the the training? And Well, I'll find someone that knows how to do that. And going back to assumption, you're assuming that that person is going to align perfectly with the vision you have for the shop. But with no prior experience in a shop, if you bring on someone and you tell them, hey, I want you to be the one running the program, unless things are perfectly aligned, there's probably going to be a lot of friction. And then anytime mm -hmm. you as the owner push back on that experienced person, that person's going to be like, I know more than you. So you should not be telling me how to do this at all. And then all of a sudden you've created a business where you're the bad boss because of your lack of experience. So unless... Mm -hmm. And I've seen partnerships work where it's somebody that they know and that's how the business comes to be is like, hey, I want to open a shop. This person has experience. We've been discussing this idea together. But the assumption of I'll just go find people that know how to do it can lead to that friction. And I should note that I'm asking you these questions off the top. Like you did not know what these questions are going to be. And to, that just shows your wealth of knowledge that off the top of your head, you can have what seemed like an answer you had written down ready to go. It's very impressive. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, it is definitely, well, we talk about it a lot on the show and it's something that we live with in the industry a lot. So it is kind of top of mind often. And I think you bring up a good point about having these power struggles in the business because of your inability, not just to know what you're doing, but you're in a sense, you're giving away your authority as an owner in a irresponsible way and creating communication um, problems from the start where you don't necessarily, you're not there to hoard power, like we mentioned earlier. Um, you're there to use your power for the good of those who you lead as, as an owner. Um, being clear with people about where you are in the process, even if you are learning, letting them know that we hired you because you have experience, but we are also learning together and we are going, this is going to be an evolution. Look at the fact, if you, if you don't have much experience, but let's say you're a very good learner and you're a humble person and you want to be like a sponge and you start a coffee bar, I have less of a problem with that. Um, if you take a year or so, at least a year and a half to explore, plan out the process, all that, take your time, don't rush it then I feel a little bit better about your lack of experience. Um, when you open, that's when the work begins. And it might not feel like that, but that, that is when the work begins. In fact, a client of mine just opened a second store after a long, um, I think maybe close to 10 years of business. And he mentioned that it felt like the exact same thing over, you know, over again, right? It starts when you open, like you get right up to that point you feel, aha, we've got press, there's a ribbon cutting, um, you know, there's cool music playing, the shots were good, opening day, but then Tuesday comes, and then Wednesday, and then nonstop continually. And so it can be almost anticlimactic because then the real issues and the challenges and the problems start. Um, so you got to give yourself grace and patience in the process because it'll take about a year or two for you to get pretty comfortable in the flow. And that's why I get worried when people say, you know what, we're going to get two or three locations in the first two years. Like, I, terrible idea. Very bad idea. 
be, because your systems are not even really out of infancy. You can't multiply something that hasn't had time to take root, right? So I always recommend people think about the process as a at least a five-year plan to say we can get more locations maybe after four to five years um, of really making this one correct and right and profitable and becoming the right people for the job. And then store two will be more of a dream for you instead of a nightmare, which it turns out to be for, if it's not for you, then it is for the people that you get to work that shop because they know you're not ready to do it. Yeah. And going back to your original point of just the amount of work, when I was uh, in the research stage of launching Folly, I was just picking anybody's brain that would sit down with me. And one theme I noticed across multiple shop owners is, you know, if I could go over and do it again, I don't know if I would, because I went from being a shop manager or a shop barista that I loved and I loved the work and was passionate about it. Now having a shop, I've created a job that's way more work, way more stress. And somehow I end up getting paid less because so much of the money goes back in the business. So it's, <laughs> it's almost like you have this dream in your head of this is what a shop owner is. You know, you see the shop owner hanging out at the shop, talking to the customers and then you don't realize all that's going on behind the scenes and the amount of work it takes and that you are creating a job for yourself just because you're self-employed doesn't mean you don't have a job. And sometimes that job can be worse than the one that you're currently working. And so having that consideration in mind of the amount of work it takes is if that was the case, would you still want to do it? Kind of the core reasons of why you're doing it. Um, I want to move on to the next one here. And this is a, a pretty emerging trend you're seeing, especially with the growth of specialty coffee, uh, is a shop starting their own roasting program. Uh, what are the common mistakes you see of a coffee shop that is currently sourcing their beans decide to start their own roasting program? Okay, so I am not a roaster. Just put that out there. So that's the one thing I haven't done. I developed an allergy to green coffee some like 10 years ago. I'm not sure how or why, but there it is. Um, but I have seen this trend the same because people are wanting to create more um, autonomy for themselves, right? And they, they want more profit from bean sales and things like that. So the mistakes that I have seen from my vantage point, and this comes also from other folks I've had on the show as well. Uh, we had an episode with, you mentioned earlier, Joe Morocco was on the show talking about, should you roast your own coffee? So I think the first mistake would be to assume that it's like adding matcha to your menu. <laughs> you know, like people, uh, I always joke to audiences when I speak at Coffee Fest, I say, you're going to walk away from here with a bunch of glossy paper it tells you that the key to your success is within the folds of this brochure, right? The strawberry matcha that everybody's doing right now and um, whatnot. We get our heart set on the idea of something and we think if I just get training from an expert and if I just get the uh, 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 commercial roaster and I can get green coffee sourced, we'll figure it out. It's really not that simple. It's like back to the exact same thing. It's another business. You're literally opening, opening another business uh, within your business. You have to have a different staff. You have to have a different business plan almost. And you have to treat your existing retail business as a wholesale customer. Um, or else you start losing money. You don't know where it's going because you're not tracking waste from the orders that you get from your, the orders that you get from your, uh, your own store. And so it, be, it really it creates a real sloppy attitude towards tracking waste and um, tracking, you know, being profitable as a business because now you, what happens is you become so distracted with this other thing because the enormity of it starts to slowly dawn on you what you've done, right? You've, you've opened this other business. You didn't mean to do it. <laughs> you, you thought it was just going to be you roasting, right? But now, the shop is suffering because you haven't allocated enough delegated authority or trained them to be able to take over the operations of that while you focus on this. It's the exact same thing as opening two or three locations. One, the original location starts to get no love and everyone wants to work at the new location because all the things that were wrong with the first one got fixed in the second one. So 
it, it really is harder than just buying a roaster. The biggest mistake is not thinking of it as another completely separate business. Um, which I've, it totally is. I've never heard that perspective before on the coffee shop side. And this reminds me of a very recent conversation I had of someone that was debate. They were shopping around to different roasters. And also one of the things on the table was we're also considering starting our own roasting program. And we did a fully transparent breakdown of our pricing. And the key takeaway from that conversation at the end of it was, oh, this isn't as profitable start your own roasting program as possible. And that's not even with what you just discussed. I mean, because you look at the green price and I, I can see how this can happen, that you look at the green price and you go, gosh, the price you're charging me for the roasted coffee is so well above the green price here. But then you break out, break down the moisture loss you get from the green, you break down the cost of even the bags it's going into, the cost of uh, sample, sample roasting, the coffee that goes into that, the cost of dialing in each roast. And the last part I've never thought about is that it is a separate business and the importance of what you said of it needs to be started as a separate business and you're charging your own cafe for that cost to be able to separate those because that is probably where a lot of people have the misconception about the extreme difference in profitability is they're looking at the cost per pound only. And Mm -hmm. what probably happens based on what you said is on the shop side, you go, why is our cost of coffee going up on this side because it's not being tracked? Like, why are we going through more coffee? That's an interesting perspective of the loss of tracking if it's not started as a separate business and track that way through here's what we purchased from the roaster, here's what was used. And in that way, it could become more of a sloppy operation unless it's treated as such. And the second thing you said that I think is a very interesting point is I think that is the most common solution people go is, well, our head trainer, they'll be our roaster. And it's and the way you started that point was, hey, I'm not a roaster. And I'm sure a lot of trainers are put in that position by the owner that it's more profitable for us to roast our own coffee. So you'll do it. And then you're put in a tough position as a trainer to say, no, I'm not the right person for this job. Or maybe it's something you do want to do. And you kind of stretch what you're able to do to be able to be in that position. I think that's a very interesting point. Well, in, in so there is this other side of the coin as we're talking about this, that yes, it's a separate business, but your retail location will be your number one um, asset in obtaining wholesale customers. So if you're not working closely with them on the quality control, on tracking and things, not only will you squander that opportunity, you'll actually give off the wrong impression by lack of quality. So you don't realize that people are over-ordering coffee or they're keeping it too long or they're not communicating with you about problems that the roast has or whatever it is. They're serving this coffee. You're not getting any, any wholesale clients and you wonder why and usually people are not going to take the time to um, send you feedback directly or even on Yelp these days, you know, Yelp's pretty slow these days. Um, Not just because of COVID, I think, you know, for whatever reason, it might be a different discussion, but um, I think that uh, your coffee bar has to be your number one customer because People who own restaurants, people who have co-working spaces, architectural firms who can afford to buy like $10,000 worth of professional coffee equipment for their, you know, break room. These are the people walking into your coffee bar. And if you're not giving a good impression, then you're, you're losing that opportunity. So it's on the other side of the coin, it is inextricably linked to your retail. Um, and so, yes, I think, again, that idea that it's a separate business, it has to be airtight as a concept with or without your retail store. Um, but it also has to be uh, in tandem with your retail store, because without that, you're not going to attract the kind of wholesale clients that you want to. And it's something that can be highly rewarding when done effectively. But going back to what you were saying on systems and like the training required is 
the quality control, now there's a whole nother layer to that. And when you see it done effectively, it's a beautiful thing to see a shop that roasts their coffee and is doing it right. And you see everything from the green to the shot of espresso that you're being served. It's a beautiful thing, but it's even more important to have new systems and new people in place to be able to check those things. Looking at the other side of this, of a roaster, I'm curious if you've worked with anybody in this situation of a roaster that is looking to open a shop. So up, up to this point, they've been a wholesale-only roaster, service are serving wholesale customers or online or retail, and now they're looking to open their own shop. You know, I don't think that I have um, yet, but I have seen that happen. And so, I mean, the same thing obviously is reversed, <laughs> but it's the exact same concept. I figured it would be so, pretty similar that it's now instead of them treating the shop like it's a part of the existing roasting business that you go, you're starting a second business that requires a whole new set of operations that you can't just build with your existing team. Yeah, exactly. You have to outsource a certain level of um well, not outsource. You just you you really need to develop a knowledge of what you don't know, and then either get people who do know that, and or become knowledgeable yourself and lead people into that knowledge. Um, but it is a separate business, and you know another a thing to think about if you're a roaster who wants to open a retail location. A lot of people start, and I've seen this many times, that they start with. Um, just a small retail expression, very small retail expression in their, uh, in their roastery, right where they roast coffee. So now that I'm thinking about it, actually, I'm newly working with somebody who's doing exactly this um, as of last week. And as a roaster, they're wanting to, you know, take advantage of tourist season coming up. We're trying to, you know, just do phone call consultation, get them up to speed with what they need to get a, modestly um, good operation going and we'll take it from there but knowing your limitations is really key I think in this process you might want to just go gung-ho if you have a ton of money to do that and you have the people to do that okay sure but here's the thing even if you did have a ton of money to do that and you have to check your ego you know you've got to make sure that you're not just doing this for the brand's sake in making a splash on Instagram um, because you might need that cash for something else later on in how you fine tune and refine the process of opening this retail location, just the same as the roastery. And so starting small and having a minimum viable product is really critical because you give yourself flexibility and you can work with small you can change small make mistakes with small all day long yeah it's going to still suck it'll hurt but it's not going to hurt nearly as bad if you sink as if you sink 500 grand or even 300 grand into a retail store that doesn't work it's funny so you say that's my first thought it's like disconnecting the ego of are you doing it just to make a splash because you feel like you should seems seems like a small issue but as a wholesale as a wholesale roaster, the number one thing we get consistently is when are you opening a shop? And I say we're not. They go, what do you mean you're not? I go, that's a whole nother business. And they go, well, no, you're a coffee roaster. When's your shop coming? And I go, that's a totally separate business. That's not what we're passionate about. We'd rather find people that that's their number one passion because. If you're opening it to make a splash, that excitement wears off very quickly, especially when you're talking about making a splash on Instagram or with social media or just getting the word out with a PR push. The excitement that can drive the fuel and the passion behind that goes away very quickly. And it's, it's like you were saying earlier that it's not opening day that, of course, opening day needs to be perfect and things need to be running smoothly and effectively. It's that Tuesday after when all that is worn off. It's the following week and the following week working those 70 hour weeks that you were working that unless that's your norm and having the drive to do that, then it probably shouldn't be done. And so something as small as why are you doing it can be such an effective thing to address before starting to pour money into it. You know, you, you bring up the why thing and I, I think the, the next logical question is, how do you determine what a worthy why is? 
And I think the answer might be even still a little frustratingly vague, so forgive me, but um, I'm not you, so I can't really, I don't know. But I think the, the litmus test here would be, is this something that you would com- be comfortable doing long-term? Is this a lifestyle that you find valuable, money be damned, right? Yeah. So eating food, good, water, uh, shelter, all those things. But I'd see the most successful people are the ones who know that they want to do it. It's a lifestyle decision. So yeah, they might not be profitable. And yes, their managers make more than them in the first two or three years, probably. Um, and their baristas too, for, through tips and whatnot. But um, the satisfaction that they get knowing that it's their business, if that's not more valuable to you than the money you're making, then you might reconsider the why that you started the business with. Exactly. The same thing for this podcast. Yeah, you know, I, can, podcast I, I can second that. Now. Yeah, because right? the 480 episodes, I mean, if you want to talk COVID podcast numbers, like the number that popped up and people go, we're going to start a podcast. It's going to be so fun. Yeah. And then I think the, the magic number is seven episodes. That's where I think 80 to 85% of them fall off because you go, oh, this is so fun. It's new. Then all of a sudden by episode eight, you're like, oh, we actually have to put work into what are we going to talk about? Even if it's just like a podcast between buddies by episode seven or eight, you're going, what are we going to riff on this week? What are we going to talk about? Let alone what you're doing that are very well thought out, researched, even if it's just based on your previous knowledge and work experience, people aren't going to listen if you're just putting out stuff that's nonsense or putting out stuff that's just always off the top of the head and not well thought out or at least planned ahead of time of the topics you want to cover. And that's a great analogy to what this is, is any endeavor you go into is like the why. And so on the shop side, when I was initially building the business plan, that was the plan. We'll have a coffee shop. That will be how we get the word out, how we meet new people, new potential customers. And I still to this day cannot remember who gave me the advice. And it was one of those people that did not like being at the shop. They were like, if you're going to start a roaster and a shop, do one or the other first, whichever one you're most passionate about and the one you care about more. And that was the coffee. It was the coffee bean. It was the cup to me. And so I said, well, okay, I should probably start this. And not, uh, not even to mention the cost saving you can do by doing one or the other. And the why is, I think, a really important part. And it can be a positive financial decision on top of just your own life. Of If you're, if you're more passionate about the one you're doing, I think it's going to serve you better. If the service side, if preparing drinks, making drink menus brings you joy, it's pretty obvious what you should focus on. And that just was not what I was passionate about. And I'm very transparent about that, similar to how you, before uh, starting your preface as a trainer, and uh, the roasting question is you say straight up, I'm not a roaster, and I'm not going to pretend to be the one to give you consultation on that. And in dealing with people in a business sense, I'm more likely to want to work with somebody that will tell you up front, this is what I'm an expert in, This is where I have not expertise in because then I know exactly what we're talking about versus having to ask you questions and then realize later you go, oh, I've been asking you roasting questions for these first two consultation sessions and that's not your area of expertise. And so I want to end on the last one here because it's already come up a few times on this episode and this is a very common thing you see with someone who's having success with their initial shop. I'll skip over the question of like opening with multiple locations. Cause I think you answered that already that have one location and hone the processes there. But what are the most common mistakes you see of someone that has a successful shop? Things are running really smoothly. You're happy with their operations at the one location, but then they go to move to a second location. That's a good question. I, so all things being equal and, and it is a green light looks like a great place to scale great time to scale as a business i think i think it has to be attention and um the fact that you can't divert all energy money and attention to store two and abandon store one because each one of those stores has within it a culture of people who even though they're well-trained, even though they're autonomous and they have great systems to work in, they still need 
uh, present authority or present leadership to be there because it's a if it's a successful shop it's a busy shop if it's a busy shop there are a lot of moving parts the systems are there to help support that but also there's a complex range of human emotions that are involved within all of those systems and so what happens is you would say, okay, we're going to go and you're not going to see us for a while. We're going to go like monk mode or whatever. And a lot of sort of like, huh, well, you know, I guess we're, you know, not good enough to, you know, at least check in to see how we're doing because life still goes on here at this shop. And so I think that might be a thing that owners can tend to do. Um, the other thing I think would be starting with a completely new staff at the second store. We talked about this recently on uh, a shift break episode about scaling values and values and culture are part of what make your coffee bar attractive and successful in your community. So in this hypothetical example, one of the reasons why you would be successful in this coffee shop would be not because you have the best prices in town, or your logo was, you know, expensive and well thought out. It's, it's more about the culture. It's more about the consistency and it's about the feeling people get when they're there. So putting a lot of effort into replicating uh, or, or maybe fixing bar flow issues. Cool. Okay. That's fine. Um, putting effort into, you know, the build out, making sure you have all that fun stuff, health code, fire, all that. You have to do that. But if you're under focusing on the culture and the people in the training and the the hospitality uh, training, then you're going to be missing the boat almost 100%. Um, And I say starting with brand new people there is a mistake because what I believe you need to do is take one or two people at least from your original location who you feel are emblematic of your business. Bring them in at least for the first year, see who's willing to be the ambassador of the culture to the new staff. So you're seeding the ground with that culture and helping it grow from a place of experience and example through yourself and through these other people, rather than just having to start at zero. Um, So that's the couple of things that I would say are probably pretty critical for scaling the business. That's such an effective metaphor when you picture like seeding the ground of the new cafe. Cause if you didn't do that, it would be like, well, I have this plot of land here and I'm just going to have the same conditions over here and it should grow the same. And then you realize the fertilizer is different. There's different seeds. Things are growing differently versus having someone to be able to go over here and cultivate that second location, be able to cultivate the values, the mission, everything about that new shop versus an entirely new staff and just hoping, well, that hopefully they turn out like this first batch did because our first staff over here is amazing. And they have, in theory, the same bar, the same atmosphere, the same branding, the same coffee. Hopefully it turns out the same way. Man. Yeah. In addition to that, I want to mention this because um, leadership has a tendency to treat their managers like pack mules <laughs> and they just put everything on them and say okay well you're going to come over here and help us like import the culture and uh, we're not going to pay you more and we're going to expect you to work more and it's all on you basically you know just throwing them into the mix without much uh, compensation or preparation i'd say avoid that too you have to properly compensate people for the extra effort that they're doing to help you build your empire uh, if you want to call it lowercase e empire or whatever. <laughs> uh, that to me is one of the biggest things that we get, we get blind to people. We treat our staff sometimes like furniture because we get to see them so much. They become sort of part, they just part of our, our day. They're not almost not human anymore, you know, because they just bleed into the walls. So we need to, make an effort to counterbalance that slow drift towards um, taking for granted the people that make our businesses run and figure out ways to do what we can and not what we can get away with. There's a big difference between those two things. So having a spirit of generosity while you're doing this is key and that will be reciprocated 
um, hopefully, by you know, more likely to be reciprocated by the people who work for you. But if you start with just a closed hand and say, you should just work for me because I hired you and I'm the boss, so do it. It's the wrong way to go about it. And opening a second store is a very stressful process for everybody. Um, in, in the midst of the span of maybe six months on average, it takes somebody to go from lease to open you know, sometimes faster, sometimes longer, but um, it needs to be managed well. People need to be managed well, compensated well, and treated generously. And uh, I think that's something I should add to this because this is a people business. And if we're not serving our people well, we can't expect to serve people in our community well either. I don't think there's a better place to end the episode than right there. Again, that was all... I did not give you those questions ahead of time. I did not. I expect, I I knew I expected you to have a wealth of knowledge on this, but that is above and beyond. So I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'll be sure to plug all your uh, your website and your socials at the bottom of this. And again, anytime someone comes to me with uh, interested in a shop, keys to the uh, keys to the shop has always been when I've pointed people because of the work that you're doing. So keep it up and, uh, I really appreciate you having on uh, coming on the podcast today, and I'll end it like I do every other one and say, have a nice day.